Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to a Chabura public shiur. Today we have the privilege of having with us Baruch Lev Kelman. We're going to be discussing Chacham Yaakov Templo and the Jerusalem Temple, topic I have very little knowledge about, so I'm very excited for today. A little bit about our speaker. Baruch Lev is a doctoral fellow at Yeshiva University and rabbinic intern of Congregation Sharit Israel in New York, raised in a mixed Yemenite, Italo-Turkish, and Ashkenazic family. Baruch Lev grew up with the customs and melodies of Western and Eastern Sephardic Jewry. He's the grandson of noted Ladino writer Matilda Cohen Serrano, edu- and he's educated at Yeshivat Male Dumim, Yeshiva College, and the University of Urbino. Baruch Lev's uh, academic interests include the Jerusalem Temple and rabbinic culture in Renaissance Italy. At Yeshiva College, he served in the Center for Israel Studies, contributing to the exhibit Samaritans, a Biblical People. Uh, it's amazing to have you with us. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much, everyone, who's going to be listening after. And uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. It's a real, it's a privilege to meet everyone. I understand that we're an international crowd uh, from people from really all over the world, which is really exciting. Uh, and through the medium of this this magic box, Zoom, we're able to communicate across thousands of miles and time zones. Uh, something that's very special in this particular period I want to thank uh, the Habura and especially Avi Garcon, uh, who invited me to speak. Uh, and when I was speaking with Avi before, when we were preparing, we had no idea that the, the weeks that would follow would bring such turmoil to the Jewish world. Um, but I actually think that maybe uh, we can, in a funny way, draw inspiration from the character we're going to speak about today, uh, a Jew who was born uh, to very... Uh, Non, in a non-expectant uh, way for a Jew to be born in a very turbulent time in Jewish history and who, if my thesis is correct, single-handedly as one individual changed the way the world views Judaism in at least one respect. Um, this is the Haham Jacob Judah Leon or Leao was his Portuguese name. Uh, and uh, he is now known as Judah Templo. Uh, we'll speak about him in a minute, but we should set the stage first to try to understand what it was that he accomplished in his lifetime and why this individual became, and this is objectively, I think, can be said to be true, the most famous Jew in Europe in the 17th century. Uh, the most famous Jew that you've never heard of, or maybe you have, but uh, if you haven't, uh, uh, then, then it'll be new and exciting. And if you have, then hopefully a new lens to look into this fascinating character. Um, I also, uh, I like to, I like to discuss and meet with people. Uh, so if you have a question, uh, you can raise your hand or indicate and, um, uh, if it could be moderated or something. Uh, and then during their sections, I think that'd be good places to stop and kind of discuss. Um, and, uh, we can look. Uh, together examine this this idea and uh, maybe poke holes in my own argument. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, uh, for now, I think we can set the stage. So our stage is actually set 3,000 years ago. So let me share my screen. Okay. Is my screen good? Visible? Yep. Okay, great. Uh, so this story begins uh, 3,000 years ago. Uh, in Jerusalem, where King David uh, instructs his son Solomon in the book of Chronicles, it's recorded, 
to build a temple in Jerusalem um, as God had told David that his son would do. Um, and he hands off to Solomon this plan for the temple. We think of Solomon as a master architect. It's actually David who's the architect. Uh, David has this scroll of the dimensions of the temple, the Book of Chronicles tells us. He passes it on to his son with the admonition, Hakol Bichtav Miyad Hashem. It is all written uh, in writing uh, by the hand of God, which indicates that he received some kind of prophecy for the temple's dimensions. Alai Haskil. Um, and this is the verse in which the uh, temple's blueprint first appears. Uh, there is a proto-temple, a tabernacle that's described in Exodus, uh, but the first temple, Solomon's temple, is derived from this Davidic plan and it's built in Jerusalem. It stands in Jerusalem for about 400 years, give or take. It's destroyed uh, and then is rebuilt uh, approximately 70 years later uh, during uh, by the uh, Jews who were exiled to Persia, who have now returned, Babylon and Persia now returned. They rebuild the temple, and within a few centuries, thanks to Herod, the temple is expanded. It becomes the biggest temple in the Roman world uh, due to the mere fact that Jews are monotheists. So there's only one temple that they're going to give their special taxes to, which is the Jerusalem temple. Um, and as we can see in this famous image, which, here we go. Uh, can you see the image? Yeah. Uh, this, was, um, this was a splendorous edifice, uh, but it should be noted that this is a model built by uh, Michael Aviona, who was a professor in Israel in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. He was a big professor. Um, and his model is largely just recreated based on text. Uh, and it's his imagination, uh, partly, uh, partly archaeology, what he thinks um, is indicated by correlate buildings in the Roman world. And this is the image that has spread throughout the world. It's been implanted in our brains. It's all over the internet. You'd search Jerusalem temple. This image by Michael Aviona pops up. You might see here and there other models of the temple, uh, of the second temple, we call it, from this period of the Roman antiquity. Um, however, generally, that's all you're really looking at in terms of conscious memory, something that looks like this. Um, and this is so widespread that it's taken for granted. However, its origin is not so clear. Uh, in fact, the temple as it's presented here is based largely on the Talmud, which is actually crazy if you think about it, because the Talmud is a collection of Jewish traditions, rabbinic traditions, dated to long after the temple is destroyed, and everyone just accepts this floor plan as the fact of what the temple looked like, when in fact other sources seem to contradict this depiction. 
So, for example, Josephus describing the temple, he has two main temple descriptions, one in a book called Antiquities, uh, which is a book that spans all of Jewish history, and one in a book called The Jewish War, which specifically uh, talks about the war between the Jews and the Romans uh, in the Second Temple period. And he has two descriptions of the temple. One of them might seem to align with the Talmud more, but another one seems to be describing a very different building in one major way. Uh, and that I think we can go to the next slide actually to illustrate. Um, what the Talmud describes are two courtyards that the temple is composed of, two main courtyards, as you can see in this image. So in the top of this courtyard, we have the altar and the sanctuary, the Hechal, which is surrounded by the Azara, the sacrificial precinct. That's where most of the stuff happens in the temple. Uh, and then there's in front of it the Ezrat Nashim, the courtyard of the women, um, so-called for complicated reasons. Um, and this is positioned east, just east of the, of the uh, sacrificial courtyard, of the priestly courtyard, it's called, the Azara. Uh, however, Josephus seems to be describing a building which has concentric courtyards. By concentric, I mean that one precinct envelops another. Um, so if you see on this right image, this is an image prepared by Isaac Newton, <laughs> who was obsessed with the temple. Uh, there's a good book about it, uh, which I have somewhere, which you can find online. I think it's called Isaac Newton in the Temple of Solomon. Uh, he kind of was a little... He believed in all sorts of uh, apocalyptic things, and he was very interested in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but you can see here, his model corresponds to what Josephus seems to be describing in one of his accounts, which is a precinct inside of a precinct. Um, that is also attested to in Ezekiel, uh, in the book of Yechezkel. Um, Yechezkel has this vision, the prophet at the end of the book after... Uh, all the calamities that are befalling Israel. He sees a future Jerusalem um, with crazy measurements that are ridiculously uh, unfathomable. Uh, but one of the things that he sees is a description of the temple. We'll look at that in a second. Uh, Ezekiel's temple is also concentric. This model is based off of Ezekiel's model. Um, there are other descriptions of the temple in the Book of Kings, in the Book of Chronicles, talking about when Solomon built the temple, they're a bit more vague. Um, and uh, so we'll stop those for now and we'll go on just to see the main two points of conflict, which is uh, the Talmud, the Talmud's description of the temple, which has these parallel courtyards, if you can call them as such, and Ezekiel's format of the temple, which has uh, concentric courtyards. Uh, so I see a hand. So let's finish this unit and then uh, <laughs> we can hear the question. Uh, let me just briefly describe Ezekiel comes to this, in this his vision, he comes to the Temple Mount, to Jerusalem, and he sees a gate in the east, the easternmost gate of the temple, um, which uh, uh, you can, is, would be facing the Mount of Olives. Um, and he sees at the gate, this figure who shines like copper, this angelic figure maybe, uh, who has in his hand 
and this is an important image to keep in mind, um, a cord of linen and a measuring rod. A measuring rod is how architects used to measure buildings. It's basically a rod which is notched um, to give you units of measure. Uh, and the cord of linen also helps you establish measure. It's easier because you can bend the cord and wrap it around things. So you can get more accurate measures that way. Uh, so he, this angelic figure with the rod and cord, is describing to Ezekiel, he's measuring out the temple. He describes this eastern gate where he meets them. And then they move a hundred cubits westward and they reach another gate, the gate facing the outer courtyard. So this, in simple language, as we can interpret Ezekiel and how everybody had interpreted Ezekiel for uh, probably at least a millennium, during the the late antiquity and the, uh, during the Middle Ages, we'll talk about that later. Um, Ezekiel is describing uh, concentric courtyards, one outer courtyard facing one inner courtyard. Well, the Talmud describes one courtyard parallel to another courtyard. Okay, so that's uh, that's the idea. Yeah, I saw a hand. Anyone had a question? Okay. If not, let's continue. Um, so this presented a big problem because you have two contradicting pools of information. There's the biblical pool of information and add on to that the classical description of Ezekiel, which is describing a temple one way. And then there's the rabbinic pool of information. Uh, and this is a big problem for the rabbis because according to the rabbis, the temple is set. It's a plan designed by God. Uh, and you can't even add an extra doorway, the Talmud says. Hakol bechtav miad Hashem. They quote this all over the place. It's all written down. Even to add dirt on the floor is considered a isur. It's prohibited because you're adding to God's divine plan. So the rabbis were really stuck. Uh, in trying to understand Ezekiel, we can look at how they dealt with it quickly. Uh, Maimonides is, I think, the most vocal, first person who was very vocal about this. Uh, in the beginning of the book called Beta Bechira, The Laws of the Chosen House, um, he describes this problem. Basically, he says, Binyan Shebana Shelomo Mefurash B'Melachim. The temple that Solomon built is described in the Book of Kings. Binyan ha'atid libanot, the temple which is going to be built in the future, afal pishehu katu b'yecheskel, even though it's written out in Ezekiel, eno meforash, it's not explained, umivorar, or clear. Meaning, I don't know what to do with Ezekiel. Uh, and I'm interpreting that to mean it's a problem, because we have the Talmud and Ezekiel makes us uncomfortable. And you see this in even rabbinic stuff nowadays. Uh, people People cringe by Ezekiel. There are other places where the Talmud says it contradicts the Torah. It's a big issue. Um, but he comes up with an idea. Maybe on Bait Sheni, the people in the second temple, Shebanu et Abayit Ezra, when they built the temple in the days of Ezra, Banu Kibinyan Shlomo, Maybe they built it according to what David told Solomon to build, but they spiced it up a little bit with some Ezekielian elements. Now, why is he saying that? He's saying that because the 
Talmud quotes Ezekiel all over the place for describing things in the temple. But it can't be the Ezekielian model, the Maimonides notes, because the Ezekielian model is concentric. It has to be parallel. So obviously, according to Maimonides, it must be hybrid. This is actually what we're taught in school. Um, most of us view there are three distinct temples, the first temple, the second temple, and the third temple, which looks like this. If you buy an art scroll, Tanakh, this is what they stick in the back, something looking very similar to Isaac Newton's model. Um, and a lot of, most of the Rishonim who are explaining Yechezkel seem to take that approach, that Ezekiel is describing a far-off temple. I don't know how it fits with this idea that the temple is immutable. I guess it's not so immutable. And in fact, Maimonides doesn't quote that concept that the temple is immutable anywhere in his entire book. And he says something else very strange, uh, which is a tangent, but he says that there are certain things which are ikar, certain parts of the temple which are uh, important to have. But he's making that up, I think. I don't think that that's based on anywhere in the Talmud. But okay. Um, but so that's how the rabbis kind of dealt with it. But the, uh, and the way rabbis generally dealt with things in the Middle Ages, which was, we follow the Talmud. Don't give me the Bible. It's okay. It's fine. Um, but on the other hand, this proved to be a problem because when Christians start reading the Bible, um, there's a professor, her name escapes me, I, I feel terrible, but she points this out. When Christians start reading the Bible and reading the Talmud, I'm sorry, reading the Talmud, they realize the Talmud doesn't say the things that the Bible says. And this is theologically problematic because the whole reason Jews are kept around is because they testify to the truth of the Bible. But wait a minute, they don't even follow the Bible. So this, according to this professor whose name escapes me, this is why actually anti-Jewish um, uh, thinking m might be picking up in the later Middle Ages. Um, but by the early modern period, you have statements like this. So this guy, this Benedictine monk, Antoine Augustin Calme, I think I'm pronounced, I don't know how to pronounce that, whatever, in his dictionary of the Holy Bible, you might have seen images from this book. It's this massive book with all these little lithographs, uh, I mean, um, prints. Um, but uh, uh, he says, he mentions the difference between the Ezekiel's courtyards and the Talmud's courtyard. He throws out the Talmud. He says, neither the Talmudists nor the rabbins are of antiquity nor or authority sufficient to provide an accurate description of the temple. They're making stuff up. Ignore the rabbis. They don't know what they're talking about. This is the model of the temple. Yes. Another question. Yeah. Somebody, somebody wrote in the chat. Is the professor Amy Jill Levine? Possibly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, okay. If it is, the Talmud says, uh, to quote those people who need to be quoted for their ideas, we bring the redemption. Uh, so uh, let's let's hope that it is her and we can get credit for that. Um, okay, so that's the first part. So to summarize again, we have two models, a rabbinic model of the temple, which is parallel, and a biblical model of the temple, which is concentric. Okay, now... That's fine, because rabbis don't really care what the rest of the world thinks of them until the early modern period, because suddenly the rest of the world has become a part of them. Um, 
I don't think I need to go into too much detail about the story of the conversos. This is the Habura. We're all descendants of Spain, or at least uh, very well informed about it. Uh, and we know all about the expulsion, but some Jews got stuck in Portugal because the king didn't want to expel them. So he forcibly baptized them and then suspended the Inquisition. So they kind of like do their own thing secretly. Um, unless you're Bibi Netanyahu's father, then they don't exist and they're created uh, by, by, uh, uh, by uh, you know, the suggestion of an Inquisition, whatever. And suddenly in the 1550s through the 1600s, you have thousands of conversos, new Christians, descendant of Jews who are escaping Spain like out of a boiling pot. And they're going to anywhere where they'll take them. One big place they end up is Amsterdam, which is the first big Spanish-Portuguese uh, community, the birthplace of the Western Sfaradim. And... Um, there's a big problem that these conversos have when they encounter Judaism again, when they re-encounter Judaism. See, they have been living as Christians, um, and they don't really have Talmuds on their shelves. So um, uh, they need, they know they, they, they know they don't like the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament. They know that that's, that's not what they're supposed to be reading. But they don't have anything else, so what do they think? Oh, we're Jews, right? What do Jews do? We read the Old Testament. So they read the Old Testament. And the problem that we know is that the Old Testament sometimes doesn't sound exactly like it's talking about what the people do in the Talmud. There's a lot of differences. And when they arrive in Amsterdam and they're told things like, oh, no, no, we keep two days of Passover, they go, what? Uh, and one of these guys who goes, what, caused uh, public trauma, communal trauma that echoes to this day. Uh, that's someone who is very romantically depicted in this image uh, in a hilarious way, which is Uriel da, Costa, da Costa, Uriel da Costa. Uriel da Costa, there's a professor, Matt Goldish, who's really an expert on this idea at University of Ohio. Um, so he talks about the fact that Uriel da Costa, we consider him like the ancestor, not the ancestor, a precursor to Spinoza, who is born about, um, he's actually, I don't know if he's alive around the same time, but uh, he's definitely, uh, he comes to prominence decades later. Uh, and in this image, there's an imagined romanticization of Uriel da Costa, the elder, uh, advising the young blonde Spinoza, uh, which he wasn't blonde, we have pictures of him. Um, but of course, we have this image in our head that they're somehow heretics related, they're the same person, uh, but they're not the same person. Uriel da Costa is not a heretic. He would call himself, in the traditional sense, he would actually call himself the only non-heretic. He calls the rabbis heretics because the rabbis violate the Torah. The Torah says Baal Tosif. And you're at a balto. Oh my gosh, I caught myself. Uh, baltosif, right? Don't add anything to the Torah in our nice Milra pronunciation. Um, and in fact, he is, uh, here we have two days of Yom Tov. How is that possible? So he fights with the rabbis. They excommunicate him. Um, Leone de Modena, the chief rabbi of Venice, gets involved. 
he feels cut out from the community. He has to apologize in order to get back into the community. There's this horrible scene where they whip him uh, and step on him in this main synagogue. Uh, and then a few years later, he shoots himself, uh, just traumatized. So after this incident, the rabbis understood that there's a Matt Goldish, you know, not necessarily this incident, but he writes about the fact that they understand there's a big problem. We have to resolve this discrepancy between the Bible and the Talmud once and for all. Um, and we'll get to in a bit how other rabbis resolved it. Uh, actually, let's do it now. I think it'll be less jumping around will be clearer. Um, so here's a book, for example, by Menashe ben Israel, who became the most famous of Amsterdam's rabbis. Ironically, he was fired uh, and replaced by Judah Templo. Uh, we might talk about that later if we have time. Um, from his job teaching in the Talmud Torah, uh, teaching in the in the uh, cheder, in the <laughs> teaching the the children Torah. Um, but he writes this book, Tesoro Dostinim. Uh, which is a great example of this. It is a Spanish compendium of halakha, um, which does just this in many places. It takes something uh, rabbinic and it does like a drasha. It tries to show in the verses of the Bible how you can understand the rabbinic reading of that uh, and show you that no, really all of rabbinic tradition is, all of the oral law is in the written law. And that's very important to explain to these conversos who value the Bible above everything else. Okay, into this context, that's end of unit two. Any questions so far? So, okay. So basically now we have, we have two issues. We have a rabbinic temple and a biblical temple, and now we have a biblical people who are encountering a rabbinic people, and they have to unite, but there's a problem. Okay, so moving on. Um, uh, and this is a problem for Christians who are making fun of Jews who think that the Talmudic model is ridiculous and the Talmudic law is ridiculous, uh, but that's changing during this time period. Uh, and then this is also a big problem for Jews who need to you know, explain to these conversos why they should follow rabbinic law. Okay, so now that was very long-winded uh, I hope you got the main ideas. Um, I know I ramble a little bit, so please tell me if I am, indicate that. Uh, we get to our hero. Jacob Judah Leao, we don't know if that's his birth name. Um, his last name, surname is Leao. He's born probably in Portugal in 1603, which means he's probably born as a Catholic um, to converso parents. Uh, he is brought to Amsterdam when he's very young. The family reverts to Judaism, uh, and he's enrolled in the local schools. He studies together. He's, you know, we think he's in school together with Menashe ben Israel and maybe Yitzchak Abu Abde Fonseca. Um, and he, uh, studies. He becomes a haham. He becomes a rabbi. Uh, he's sent off to, uh, Middleburg, yeah, Middleburg, um, to be their rabbi for a bit. He comes back. He ends up teaching in the Talmud Torah. Um, and, uh, he is an eccentric character, a very eccentric character. He's, I think we can call him a dreamer. Uh, he's very visually oriented. 
Um, it's not sure if he's an artist himself or he's uh, getting the help of artists who realize his visions, um, but he's a little absent-minded. Um, we're told that uh, the Parnassim used to be very upset because they would go to, the heads of the community would go to check up on his students and he would they would see they're learning alone. And they would say, where's your rabbi? Oh, he's off doing his temple stuff somewhere, who knows? And they would get very upset. Um, but here you have two images of him produced by Salomitalia. Uh, this is actually, it's a bit of a side point, but I have to mention it because it's hilarious and it'll be a, a nice little uh, thing for you people to see. Um, these are two images. The one on the left is created first uh, and it accidentally reverses the image of the temple on the bottom. Uh, it's facing um, north to south instead of south to north. Um, so he got some, he got the engraver to, to fix it, to switch it back, which is what you see on the right. You also see this guy in both pictures, the angel with the rod and the cord. This becomes Judah Templo's symbol, um, which is important. Keep that in mind. Uh, and then also, this is funny. As long as you're fixing up the image, I think he's telling the engraver, can you add hair, please? Because I don't want people to think I'm bald. I think that's what's going on here. Um, but, uh, who knows? I don't know. I'm not so expert in these things, but, uh, yeah, I think that might be what's happening. But anyway, so Judah Templo, I want to just read beautiful. I like, you know, I, I'm trying to, to give information, but there are some historians who can tell stories. Uh, Simon Shama, uh, is one of these. He has these beautiful histories of the Jews. Um, they're like for the public audiences, uh, and they're very fun. So he describes... Um, he describes the queen, Henrietta Maria, exiled queen of England. Uh, she's on, in exile, she's on holiday in Amsterdam. She visits the Jewish community. Menashe bin Israel, it's like the high point of his life. <laughs> he writes about it like forever. He gets to speak to her, um, which the Parnassim, they don't trust him as a Talmud Chacham, whatever that, why that's the case, who knows. But they're like, oh, if anyone can speak to the queen, it's going to be him. So he orates very fancily in his 17 languages that he speaks. Um, and then afterwards, according to a story, which might be true, but we can't prove it exactly, uh, Henrietta Maria and the children walked a few hundred yards around the corner uh, from the synagogue where they stopped before a modest house bearing a plaque set into its wall, indicating that they had just arrived at King Solomon's temple. There they were greeted by another acquaintance of uh, Huygens, who is this, who's giving them the tour in Amsterdam, a man dressed indistinguishably from any good Christian of the day, the same black skull cap uh, wore by Calvinist preachers, the same fallen lace and linen collar, which actually disappears in the second image. So I wonder if he was like, don't give me that non-Jewish thing, but who cares? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? Um, uh, um, same modest black coat, uh, same neatly trimmed whiskers uh, and, bre and beard. And he says, bright as a button, Jacob Judah Leon, whom everyone called Templo. Uh, actually, it might be that Templo is a moniker he gets later, but he ushers the queen into his house. And who is he? 
According to Simon Shama, he's the first showman of the Bible. Here he is amid the tents of Israel. How goodly they are. The staff of Moses, which is a mistake. It's Ezekiel. Uh, so we should tell Simon Shama that he got that wrong. Itself the ancestor of Templo's own trusty pointing stick. Um, uh, whip, whipping around. And in his own way, Templo is a miracle worker. His inspiration powered by the breath of God. The genius of the Jewish story he has realized is its portability. The first tabernacle was made to be on the move. The first ark, a cupboard on a litter, capable of being born into battle. So he makes his model temple collapsible and modular. Each part numbered and designed for swift reassembly. In the Hague and Harlem, uh, at the Midsummer Fair, he would establish his model on a big site enough to take, the, he would establish himself on a big enough site to take the model. Payment of a modest entry fee gave access to the model uh, and uh, for even a goodly temple builder needs bread, soup, and herring, right? Uh, <laughs> this is great. Then as a bonus attraction, he would set out the accompanying fixtures, the seven-branch menorah, the showbread table, the urim vitumim, um, and then with a silence-prompting little cough, <clears throat> He would begin. This is a beautiful, you know, a, very imagined, but he's obviously getting at something here, which is this guy was, we can imagine him maybe as a Raphael, you know, somebody who was inspired and, and bright-eyed and excited by this obsession, the Temple of Jerusalem. Um, and in fact, uh, what he doesn't say is, and I kind of skipped this part, uh, sorry, uh, meaning he describes that he would build a model. So we can see his model of the temple here. This is a reproduction of it. Um, can everyone see it or? Yeah, uh, it's kind of blurry. I couldn't get a good one, um, but you would see the model. Uh, the expert of this model was the late Professor Audrey Offenberg, who actually recreated it. I have no idea where it is. Uh, if anyone can find it, please let me know. Um, and uh, and uh, in here, uh, he also had a little pamphlet, uh, the Retrato del Templo de Salomon, uh, the treatise on the Temple of Solomon, which was kind of like a little guide that you get uh, when you go to a museum. You get like a little pamphlet and you can go, oh, that's what that is. Uh. So it's written in Spanish and in Portuguese and in Dutch and in English and eventually gets to Yiddish and I think makes its way to German. It's translated in seven languages. This becomes hugely popular. His model gets exhibited all over the place. Um, and his book is commissioned by all these people who want a translation. Everybody's talking about this Judah Templo. People come to the synagogue uh, because of him. Uh, this is described in Rembrandt and the Jews by Stephen Nadler. People come to the synagogue and the Parnassim, it drives them crazy. All these non-Jews are coming and they can't do anything about this guy because he's become quite independently wealthy. He gets into a lawsuit later in life with his own daughter and son-in-law, but that's, that's for the rights to his temple model. Um, and he's famous now. Uh, and... In fact, uh, we even have a translation of his piece, and this is the key part, in 
Hebrew. And this is the most important one that gets overlooked. Okay, end of this unit. I see the chat, um, maybe in the Amsterdam archives. Well, I'm sh- there are images of it. I actually had the joy to be at the Itzchayim Library in the summer. Uh, I know that there are, we have images and, and prints of it, but uh, Audrey Offenberg, I think, built like a physical model. Uh, I'm not sure if that's there. I can ask. Uh, I'll ask uh, my friend um, who is there. But uh, okay, so yeah, so that's that's uh, this section. Okay, so now wh- where does all this fall in? How does how do the, all these independent elements fall together? Again, we have a rabbinic and biblical model. Biblical, uh, we have a, a rabbinic and biblical model with the Christians and Jews are fighting about. Then you have biblical Jews and rabbinic Jews which are fighting about what's true, what's not true. And now you have this guy who comes on and he displays a model of the temple and it gets very popular all over the place. Um, well, note something about Judah Temple's model. Who is he following? Anyone want to shout it out? Is this the biblical model or the rabbinic model? Uh, biblical. It's the rabbinic model. Here you have the Ezrat Nashim in the front and the Azara in the back. This is, it's kind of hard to see in this picture, I'm sorry, but this is a rabbinic model, parallel courtyards. So wait a minute, why are all these Christians obsessed with this guy? He is literally telling them the opposite of everything they knew. Now, this is the period of Hebraism. So there are Christians who are starting to be interested in the Talmud. Uh, But I think that uh, that aspect is how Judah Temple communicates the rabbinic model to the Christian world. It's just so prevalent. Prevalent. He brings it everywhere. He it's published in these Bibles by these Hebraists who publish Dutch Bibles and have images of it. Um, the Freemasons later claim that he's a Freemason in the 1700s. They claim that he was a Freemason, designed their coat of arms, and they have images of this temple all over the place. With, you can even see some of these buttresses. It's based on an older model of the temple by a guy named Villa Pando, but in some Freemason lodges. Uh, and I have friends who are Freemasons, and they know Brother Templo, of course. Um, uh, who, if, was he a Freemason? Probably not. But his model it is even on display in the 1700s. People are talking about how it's still in London from his trip there, where according to legend, he displayed it at Whitehall before King uh, Charles the second. Um, and, uh, this, that's how he gets it into the Christian mind. But what about what, how is he justifying himself to the Jews? So here's the thing. A lot of people have studied Judah temple, a lot of very smart people. Um, a lot of them though, are not necessarily, um, like people who are in the field of Talmud. Um, uh, so they might miss some things in the Hebrew translation, uh, which I think are very blatant. Um, and, uh, this is where my thesis comes into play, uh, which is a lot of scholars just assume he's presenting the rabbinic model. It's a polemic, uh, and that's what's happening here. Um, but actually, if you read Judah Templo's book in Hebrew, I think we have some time to read a few excerpts. We'll see he's doing something different. Yeah, two questions. What about this image? Let me see. 
Is everyone seeing this? Oh, that's beautiful. Can everyone see this? Yeah, that's really nice. Thank you. Uh, now you can really see, right? Yezrat Nashim. Oh, I should save this. This is cool. Uh, I don't have an image like this. And you can see the Ezrat Kohanim in the back here. It looks a little bit like Versailles, you know? Well, because that was the style. Okay, how do I get back to here? Okay, here we go. Um, all right, so let's look at this a little bit. So we have, in his introduction, very clearly states uh, on the first page uh, that this is Okay, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Um, this is all based on uh, the people, those who were authored the Mishnah, the the temple that Solomon built. So it's very clear to him, he thinks the Talmud is describing Solomon's temple. Um, and he says, you should know that this temple is very important. Why is it very important? Because it is conceived of by God. The most important thing to know about the temple is that this temple was It was built by this really smart king, King Solomon, who he's obsessed with. He even names his son Solomon. Um, and what was it built on? It was built according to Hatavnit Hanatunlo Me'et Hashem, the model that God gave him. This is the divine plan of the temple, which is what the Talmud says and what rabbis seem to have forgotten, I think. Um, but this is a key important factor. The temple is immutable. Um, maybe not forgotten. That was, that was a bit, you know, that was, that was me going into romantic rabbinic mode, not so much academic mode. Let me go back to academic mode. Okay. So that's key. But then he also says, oh, wait, but there are differences between the second temple and the first temple and the future temple. And he says in a list, he lists them in a sentence. They're very minute. Uh, he says, uh, If some things seem unfamiliar to you, dear reader, and make you frustrated, I love this. No one is frustrated about this. Only you are frustrated about this. Okay, but he's frustrated about it. Well, don't be alarmed because... Um, all these things, the fortress that's in the northern section of the temple, the fortress Antonia, and this big hall that's in front, that's twice as high on the southern side of the temple, the royal stoa, um, and the uh, golden grapevine that's in front of the temple, and the picture of the city of Susa on the eastern gate of the temple, and the crowns of gold affixed to the uh, windows of the temple, of the temple sanctuary, all of these things, they were only in the second temple, not in the first temple. He lists them very specifically, nothing to do with the courtyards. And then he says, oh, and there are also some things that will be in the future temple, like the water that comes out miraculously from under the temple. We can see the water spilling out here. Uh, spilling out into the Mediterranean, where, according to the Bible, they'll make the Mediterranean sweet, and you'll go fishing in Ein Gedi, um, and they will heal all sorts of sicknesses. That's key. So then, wait a minute, what's going on? How can Judah Templo be reading 
this future temple as corresponding to the ancient temple if clearly we can see with our own eyes that Ezekiel is a totally different book. Well, some say that he didn't look at Ezekiel at all. That's not true. He read the Bible. He knows his Bible. He writes, you know, grammatical books. He's read his Bible. Um, Some say he's ignoring it on purpose. He's not ignoring it. You know how he's not ignoring it? Because um, there's one academic who says that. I shouldn't say some. One academic says he's ignoring Ezekiel. But you can see he quotes Ezekiel on every page of this book. But what he does is with his artist's mind, he reinterprets Ezekiel to fit with the Talmud's model. Just like Menashe ben Israel reinterprets the, or reinterprets the Bible to contain the oral law. Um, so how does he do this? I was going to look inside, but for time, I think we'll just go ahead and look at the pictures here. This is the standard interpretation of Ezekiel since at least the Middle Ages. You have the sacrificial precinct surrounded by the outer precinct, and then there's the temple mount. What, is it, what Leon does is he's like, oh yeah, there is something that goes around the temple, but that's not the outer precinct. That is the temple mount, which even in our picture of Aviona, you can see that's true. The temple mount encircles the two precincts. And the gate that's being described in the beginning of Ezekiel is not the gate of the outer precinct in the east, which is 100 cubits before the gate of the inner precinct. Uh, uh, rather, right here and here, you can see my mouse, right? Yeah. Rather, it's the gate of the temple mount, which is 100 cubits from the gate of the outer precinct, which has gates that are concentrically encircled by the gates of the temple mount. But the Azara, the, uh, the sacrificial precinct, those gates aren't mentioned in Ezekiel. Oh, how convenient, because those gates are mentioned in the Talmud, while the gates of the Ezra Nashim are not mentioned in the Talmud. So it corresponds very nicely, and he's able to squeeze it together and create this new interpretation of Ezekiel, which is identical to the Talmudic model, with the outer precinct corresponding to the women's precinct, and the sacrificial precincts corresponding, and the plateau of the Temple Mount corresponding. Okay. Here we see Ezekiel, how important Ezekiel is to Templo. Here's the later, I guess when he gets fancier in life and he starts, you know, showing off, he has this family crest invented for himself uh, and uh, this portrait done of him holding the rod and cord, which become his symbol. Um, and he's looking, he's got his hand on his hip and he's looking very proud of himself. Um, and as he should be. And what's the influence of his of Judah Temple? Well, in the Jewish community, something worked because he was revered. Uh, the temple at uh, the temple. Well, yeah, the temple. It's called the, the it's the temple Yoden, right? In Amsterdam, the Esnoga was has a little nod to Judah Temple. Uh, you can see that it has these buttresses. There's a scholar, her name is She's so cool. Her name is Laura Lieber. I have to look on my shelf. Uh, she talks about Solomonic proportions in Spanish Portuguese synagogues and the Neo-Solomonic order, which is a kind of imagined Solomonic architecture that they can adapt while everyone else is doing Neo-Roman, Neo-Classical, they are doing Neo-Solomonic, right? Um, so he's had that impact. Uh, but that aspect has been forgotten. But his impact on the rest of the world 
I think, endures. I think it's him. I think he changed everybody's mind about what the temple looks like. Not by, you know, presenting good arguments necessarily, but by just propounding, by being the biggest image of the temple. Baruch Spinoza was his student. And in his library, we see a treatise of the book, uh, which Judah Templo published, um, which is really cool. Uh, and um, uh, it's in the inventory there. And Judah Templo's model, I think, is really why the entire world takes the Talmud for granted. And now they have to come up, Lawrence Schiffman has a great article on this, They ha- uh, on the different models of the temple in Josephus. Uh, they have to deal with how are, how, how do we interpret Josephus? Nobody says, how do we interpret the Talmud? It's taken for granted. And it's because of Judah Templo. Um, so, uh, that's really cool. Uh, and actually, before I break for questions, I want to take off my academic hat. Um, and first say my little idea, which is, I actually think he might have stumbled onto the Talmud's interpretation. The Talmud describes specifically where Ezekiel contradicts the uh, oral law. It is nothing to do with architecture. And if you read Mesechem Yigot, it quotes Ezekiel a lot. Um, yeah, it says, Oh, and that's how they will be in the future. That might be where Maimonides got his idea that Ezekiel is describing a future temple. But that's because Ezekiel is describing a future temple. Um, not necessarily that the shape of the temple will change. Um, so that's why the Talmud goes out of its way to say that. I don't know, maybe, who knows? That's one aspect. But then the other aspect, which I think is a meaningful thing for us to talk about today, is just this idea that, you know, we, um, in, uh, in our time, uh, we see a lot of people doing hasbara, you know, people who stand up for the state of Israel and, try to correct. And a lot of people say, eh, Hasbara, why do we need it? You're wasting time. You're falling on deaf ears. Nobody wants to hear your explanation about why Hamas is not telling the truth, why Israel is telling the truth or whatever, and uh, what's going on in Israel today. Uh, but actually, we see that by standing up, there are people who are listening. The Queen of Sweden is very interested in Judah Temple's model. The King of England, and England, mind you, I know uh, my my rabbi, Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, would be very insistent on saying that it's Menashe ben Israel who gets the Jews to England, but maybe Judah Templo paid a part. Uh, maybe he's making allies in his trips to England uh, that uh, with the king, uh, which Menashe ben Israel was chilling out with Lord Cromwell, but uh, Judah Temple's got the ear of the king, King Charles. Uh, he's got a royal warrant from Charles. Maybe he changed history in that way too. Uh, regardless, he's a figure who has largely been forgotten, uh, and he needs to be remembered because he's so cool. Uh, literally, that's, that's the main reason why. Uh, but also because we can see how creative thinking, how standing up for what you believe in, uh, you can really change the world. It's really cool. Uh, so, okay, that's my presentation. Um, and I, I now open up if you have in the next few minutes any questions or comments. Uh, yeah. That was very well presented. And we'll take a few questions. So if anyone you can raise your hand, unmute, or write it in the chat box. Are there any other models other than, than his? 
that try to solve these problems? I uh, I don't know. Maybe um, I haven't really studied. Uh, there's the it really explodes. There's a there's a the good book about this is this book. This is a great book. This is Isaac Newton in the Temple of Solomon. She gets Judah Temple wrong, um, but she presents all of the Christian kind of interpretations. But it really seems like there were rabbinists, uh, like there was this one guy, Constantine le Emperor, and there were uh, there were biblicists, uh, and these were two things. At some point, it becomes common to think that the second temple and the third temple look different. I don't know how that happens. I don't know if that's directly from Maimonides. Um, but uh, that's, I think, the most common interpretation today. Um, there's also the temple scroll in, in the Qumran caves. Okay, that's another thing. But um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if there are any models that try to explicitly read Ezekiel rabbinically. I don't think so. Uh, and in fact, I, I mean, I think I discovered that that's what Judah Temple was doing. I don't think people interpreted him that way either. Um, but uh, unless I'm mistaken, uh, there might be, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure in the past 400 years, somebody has, you know, written on it. But um, my, I'm also very limited by like my lack of Dutch at the moment. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, and uh, that's that's really. I just think it's so cool that regardless of whether he's right or wrong, how loud his voice became, uh, and how how big an impact he had. It, so, it, oh yeah, uh, Gloria, uh, you're on mute. Gloria, you're on mute. You have to unmute. There. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 I, I was wondering uh, about his name. Uh, did he assume the name Temple? No, he didn't. Did other he, people get, yeah, other he was people given to him. Because of yeah. He was oh, called wow. Temple. Oh, that's, that's uh, nice. It's yeah. cute because it's also kind of like it's Spanish. Um, for t It just means Temple. Um, but uh, what's he calls himself Leon Hebreus, Leon the Hebrew. And that was in that time period. That's how you differentiated yourself. If you wanted to be, uh, if you notice in some polite European cultures, they say Ebreo or Evraiki, right? Uh, they won't say Jew because Jew is kind of like a dirty word. So yeah. that kind of starts here. Uh, people like Menashe in Israel, they want to be called Hebraeus, the Hebrew. Uh, you know, that's, that's important for them. Um, but no, I don't think he calls himself Templo, no. But I'm sure if he would have known, he would have loved it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so it wasn't during his lifetime? I don't think so. Uh, it's possible. Oh. I don't think so. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, we have a file. Uh, what is this? Oh, this is his signature. Jacob Judah Leon. What does that say? De Leone. Wow. Jacob Yehuda Leone. Oh, it's signed twice. I'm not sure what this is from. Could we have some? And Avram Yehuda Leon. Oh, look Will at you see it? Can we see it? Yeah. Oh, let me share this. This is cool. That is his signature from Livorno. Wow. Thank you, Noah. That's so cool. Wow. Oh, I have to download this. 
But what? What is it from? Some document? Oh, I can click on this thing and uh, yes, save in pictures folder. Okay, awesome. Thank you. That looks like members of his family. I think. Is that possible? Is it like a census? Wow. Okay, that's cool. Um, oh, I think. Can we it's, see? Can we oh, see? you. It's okay. Let me share. I thought I shared it. Uh, share screen. Oh, oh, how do I get out of here? Uh, no, nah, I'm sorry. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> but it's in the chat. It's down in the chat if you click on that. I'll send it to you later. I know where you live. Um, anyway. All right. So uh, if there's... Uh, oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for 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 bearing it. I hope that the... the uh, the ending was was cool resolution, uh, and thank you so much, Noah. Uh, that's so, we got a lot of cool cool things here. Awesome, and also from oh yeah yeah cool. All right, awesome. All right, so uh, take care and all the best, everyone. Uh, stay optimistic in this time. Uh, we can all make a difference, like Judith Templo. Okay, take care. Thank you so much, everyone. My little. My little. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Noah. <laughs> oh, hi, to be.